as a reader, you have total freedom in choosing which stories you like, what genres you prefer to escape into, and where I can completely and totally understand people not caring very much about certain stories, certain lore, certain classics. The producers and the writers of the Lord of the Rings series, mm -mm, the abomination that is about to occur on Amazon Prime, they not only should care, it is their job to get the lore of this world that Tolkien spent a lifetime creating. If you are new here to Bookie, hi, I am your Bookie. And this series is not going to be one where you have to hear my pained uh, recanting of a story. And if you do, you will simultaneously be able to have the lore of the Lord of the Rings for yourself. Today's introductory episode is going to be dedicated to all of the front matter of the Silmarillion, which is the book that the Amazon Prime, the power of the rings, guys, I don't even care to really get down what they are doing over there because um, it, it's an abomination. And I just can't say that I care that much. Nevertheless, I do care about preserving the lore. And one may be asking, and it's called the rings of power. Why, Boogie, do you care about presenting the front matter of this book? Because I am a writer and I respect lore. I love lore. And if you're going to undertake a project as gargantuan as this and as beloved as this, all you have to do is follow the blueprint that has been set out for you. It is that simple. Prior to the break, I just want to mention that, number one, this series is going to be for my ride or dies. This series is completely chalked full of lore, full of people, places, languages. I am an aspiring polyglot and finding out that Tolkien was a was interested in linguistics the way that I am. It just tickles my fancy for you diehard Middle Earthers. Forgive my mispronunciations. Just like in Dune, I will attempt to consort with the the glossary, the indexes, if I um, see that is necessary. But a lot of this is a lot of these places and a lot of these songs, etc., or the workings of the languages that Tolkien, let's just say, um, in a very sparing way put forth so um it's not a formal language guys so calm down please do not get too beside yourself with that i will try my very best but with that being said we are going to jump into the front matter so that and if you don't know what front matter is front matter is all of the material that comes before the book begins so before chapter one all that good stuff that you ignore to hurry up and get to chapter one that's front matter and I'm going to read it so that we can put the record out there of not so much only what the intention was because I would like to put that out there on air to broadcast that but I would also like to highlight that when you see this or when you share with other people the younger faction how what's coming out on Amazon is an abomination and nothing close to what it should have been they will be able to come and listen to this and because most people don't bother with the front matter they will be able to get it in a clear concise way 
and it will highlight how the people who created this show shat all over it. So now let's jump in. The Silmarillion, now published four years after the death of its author, is an account of the Elder Days, or the First Age of the World. In The Lord of the Rings were narrated the great events at the end of the Third Age, but the tales of the Silmarillion are legends deriving from a much deeper past, when Morgoth, the first Dark Lord, dwelt in Middle-earth, and the High Elves made war upon him for the recovery of the Silmarils. Not only, however, does the Silmarillion relate the events of a far earlier time than those of the Lord of the Rings, it is also, in all the essentials of its conception, far the earlier work. Indeed, although it was not then called the Silmarillion, it was already in being half a century ago, and in battered notebooks extending back to 1917 can still be read the earliest versions, often hastily penciled, of the central stories of the mythology, but it was never published, though some indication of its content could be gleaned from the Lord of the Rings. And throughout my father's long life, he never abandoned it, nor ceased even in his last years to work on it. In all that time, the Silmarillion, considered simply as a large narrative structure, underwent relatively little radical change. It became long ago a fixed tradition and background to later writings. But it was far indeed from being a fixed text and did not remain unchanged, even in certain fundamental ideas concerning the nature of the world it portrays. While the same legends came to be retold in longer and shorter forms and in different styles. As the years passed, the changes in variance, both in detail and in larger perspectives, became so complex, so pervasive, and so many-layered that a final and definitive version seemed unattainable. Moreover, the old legends, old, now not only in their derivation from the remote First Age, but also in terms of my father's life, became the vehicle and depository of his profoundest reflections. In his later writing mythology and poetry sank down behind his theological and philosophical preoccupations from which arose incompatibilities of tone. On my father's death, it fell to me to try to bring the work into publishable form. It became clear to me that to attempt to pr present within the covers of a single book the diversity of the materials to show the Silmarillion as in truth a continuing and evolving creation extending over more than half a century would in fact lead only to confusion and the submerging of what is essential. I set myself therefore to work out a single text selecting and arranging in such a way as seemed to me to produce the most coherent and internally self-consistent narrative. In this work, the concluding chapters from the death of Turin Tirumbar introduced peculiar, peculiar difficulties in that they remained unchanged for many years and were in some respects in serious disharmony with more developed conceptions in other parts of the book. A complete consistency, 
either within the compass of the Silmarillion itself or between the Silmarillion and other published writings of my father's, is not to be looked for and could only be achieved, if at all, at heavy and needless cost. Moreover, my father come to conceive, this person's writing, not mine, the Silmarillion as a compilation, a compendious narrative made long afterwards from sources of great diversity, poems and annals and oral tales that had survived an age-long tradition, and this conception has indeed its parallel in the actual history of the book, for a great deal of earlier prose and poetry does underlie it, and it is to some extent a compendium in fact and not only in theory. To this may be ascribed the varying speed of the narrative and fullness of detail in different parts, the contrast, for example, of the precise recollections of place and motive in the legend of Turin Turambar, beside the high and remote account of the end of the first age when Thangordrim was broken and Morgoth overthrown, and also some differences of tone and portrayal, some obscurities, and here and there some lack of cohesion. In the case of the Valaquenta, for instance, we have to assume that while it contains much that must go back to the earliest days of the Eldar in Valinor, it was remodeled in later times and thus explained its continual shifting of tense and viewpoint so that the divine powers seem now present and active in the world, now remote, a vanished order known only to memory. The book, though entitled as it must be, The Silmarillion, contains not only the Quinta Silmarillion or Silmarillion proper, but also four other short works, the Enolindale and Velaquenta, which are given at the beginning are indeed closely associated with the Silmarillion, but the Akalabeth and of the Rings of Power, which appear at the end, are, it must be emphasized, wholly separate and independent. They are included according to my father's explicit intention, and by their inclusion the entire history is set forth from the music of Aner, in which the world began, to the passing of the ring bearers from the havens of Mithland at the end of the Third Age. The number of names that occur in the book is very large, and I have provided a full index, but the number of persons, elves and men, who play an important part in the narrative of the First Age is very much smaller, and all of these will be found in the genealogical tables. In addition, I have provided a table setting out the rather complex naming of the different Elvish peoples, a note on the pronunciation of Elvish names, and a list of some of the chief elements found in these names, and a map. It may be noted that the great mountain range in the east, Ered Lewin or Ered Linden, the Blue Mountains, appears in the extreme west of the map in the Lord of the, Wing, the Rings. In the body of the book, there is a smaller map. The intention of this is to make clear at a glance where lay the kingdoms of the elves after the return of Noldor to Middle-earth. I have not burdened the book further with any sort of commentary or annotation. In the difficult and doubtful task of preparing the text of the book, I was very greatly assisted by Guy Kay, who worked with me in 1974 through 1975. Christopher Tolkien, 1977. Preface to the Second Edition Probably towards the end of 1951, when The Lord of the Rings was completed but difficulties lay in the way of its publication, my father wrote a very long letter to his friend Milton Waldman at that time an editor at the publishing house of Collins. The context and occasion of this letter lay in the painful differences that arose over my father's insistence that the Silmarillion 
and the Lord of the Rings should be published in conjunction or connection as one long saga of the jewels and the rings. There is, however, no need to enter into this matter here. The letter that he wrote with a view to justifying and explaining his contention emerged as a brilliant exposition of his conception of the earlier ages. The latter part of the letter, as he himself said, was no more than a long and yet bald resume of the narrative of the Lord of the Rings. And it is for this reason that I believe that it merits inclusion within the covers of the Silmarillion, as is done in this edition. The original letter is lost, but Milton Waldman had a typescript made of it and sent a copy to my father. It was from this copy that the letter was printed, in part, in the letters of J.R.R. Tolkien in 1981, number 131. The text given here is that in letters, page 143 to 157, with minor corrections and omission of some of the footnotes. There were many errors in the typescript, especially in names. These were very largely corrected by my father, but he did not observe the sentence in part 18. There was nothing wrong, essentially, in their lingering against counsel, still sadly with the mortal lands of their old heroic deeds. Here, the typist certainly omitted words in the manuscript and perhaps misread those given as well. I have removed a number of errors in the text and index, which until now have escaped correction in the hardback printings, only of the Silmarillion. Chief among these are those that concern the numbering and sequence of certain of the rulers of Numenor. For these errors and an explanation of how they arose, see Unfinished Tales, 1980, page 226, note 11, and The Peoples of Middle-Earth, 1996, page 154, and S31. I have no idea what that means. Christopher Tolkien, 1999. From a letter by J.R.R. Tolkien to Milton Waldman in 1951. My dear Milton, you asked for a brief sketch of my stuff that is connected with my imaginary world. It is difficult to say anything without saying too much. The attempt to say a few words opens a floodgate of excitement. The egoist and artist at once desires to say how the stuff has grown, what it is like, and what he thinks he means or is trying to represent by it all. I shall inflict some of this on you, but I will append a mere resume of its contents, which is, maybe, all that you want or will have use or time for. In order of time, growth, and cons composition, this stuff began with me, though I do not suppose that that is much of interest to anyone but myself. I mean, I do not remember time when I was not building it. Many children make up or begin to make up imaginary languages. I have been at it since I could write, but I have never stopped. And of course, as a professional philologist, especially interested in linguistic aesthetics, I have changed in taste, improved in theory, and probably in craft. Behind my stories is now a nexus of languages, mostly only structurally sketched. But to those creatures, which in English I call misleadingly elves, or assign two related languages, more nearly completed, whose history is written and whose forms representing two different sides of my own linguistic taste are deduced scientifically from a common origin. Out of these languages are made nearly all the names that appear in my legends. This gives a certain character, a cohesion, a consistency of linguistic style and an illusion of historicity to the nomenclature or so I believe, that is markedly lacking in other comparable things. Not all will feel this as important as I do since I am cursed by acute sensibility to such matters. But an equally basic passion of mine, ab initio, was for myth, not allegory, 
and for fairy story and above all for heroic legend on the brink of fairy tale and history of which there is far too little in the world accessible to me for my appetite. I was an undergraduate before thought and experience revealed to me that these were not divergent interests, opposite poles of science and romance, but integrally related. I am not learned in the matters of myth and fairy story. However, for in such things, as far as known to me, I have always been seeking material things of a certain tone and air and not simple knowledge. Also, and here I hope I shall not sound absurd, I was from early days grieved by the poverty of my own beloved country. It had no stories of its own, bound up with its tongue and soil, not of the quality that I sought and found as an ingredient in legends of other lands. There was Greek and Celtic and Romance, Germanic, Scandinavian and Finnish, which greatly affected me, but nothing English, save impoverished chapbook stuff. Of course, there was and is all the Arthurian world, but powerful as it is, it is imperfectly naturalized, associated with the soil of Britain, but not with English and does not replace what I felt to be missing. For one thing, its fairy is too lavish and fantastical, incoherent and repetitive. For another and more important thing, it is involved in and explicitly contains the Christian religion. For reasons which I will not elaborate, that seems to me fatal. Myth and fairy story must as all art reflect and contain in solution elements of moral and religious truth or error, but not explicit, not in the known form of the primary real world. I am speaking, of course, of our present situation, not of ancient pagan pre-Christian days, and I will not repeat what I tried to say in my essay, which you read. Do not laugh, but once upon a time, my crest has long since fallen, I had a mind to make a body of more or less connected legend, ranging from the large and cosmo cosmogonic to the level of romantic fairy story. Cosmogonic or gonic, I don't know guys, it could be either one. The larger founded on the lesser in contact with the earth the lesser drawing splendor from the vast backcloths, which I could de dedicate simply to, to England, to my country. It should possess the tone and quality that I desired, somewhat cool and clear, be redolent of our air, the clime and the soil of the Northwest, meaning Britain and the hither parts of Europe, not Italy or the Aegean, still less the east and while possessing if i could achieve it the fair elusive beauty that some call celtic though it is rarely found in genuine ancient celtic things it should be high purged of the gross and fit for the more adult mind of a land long now steeped in poetry I would draw some of the great tales in fullness and leave many only placed in the scheme and sketched. The cycle should be linked to a majestic whole and yet leave scope for other minds and hands wielding paint and music and drama. Absurd. Of course, such an overweening purpose did not develop all at once. The mere stories were the thing. They arose in my mind as given things and as they came separately so to the links grew an absorbing though continually interrupted labor especially since even part even apart from the necessities of life the mind would wing to the other pole and spend itself on the linguistics yet always i had the sense of recording what was already there somewhere not of inventing of course, I made up and even wrote lots of other things, especially for my children. Some escaped from the grasp of this branching acquisitive theme, 
being ultimately and radically unrelated. Leaf by Niggle and Farmer Farmer Giles, for instance, the only two that have been printed. The Hobbit, which was much, which has much more essential life in it, was quite independently conceived. I did not know as I began it that it belonged, but it proved to be the discovery of the completion of the whole, its mode of descent to earth and merging into history. As the high legends of the beginnings are supposed to look at things through elvish minds, so the middle tale of the Hobbit takes a virtually human point of view, and the last tale blends them. I dislike allegory, the conscious and intentional allegory, yet any attempt to explain the purport of myth or fairy tale must use allegorical language. And of course, the more life a story has, the more readily will it be susceptible of allegorical interpretations. While the better a deliberate allegory is made, the more nearly will it be acceptable just as a story. Anyway, all this stuff is mainly concerned with fall, mortality, and the machine. With fall, inevitability, inevitably, and that motive occurs in several modes. With morality, especially as it affects art and the creative, or as I should say, sub-creative, desire, which seems to have no biological function and to be apart from the satisfactions of plain, ordinary biological life, with which in our world is indeed usually at strife. This desire is at once wedded to a passionate love of the real primary world and hence filled with the sense of morality and yet unsatisfied by it. It has various opportunities of fall. It may become possessive, clinging to the things made as its own. The sub-creator wishes to be the Lord and God of his private creation. He will rebel against the laws of the creator, especially against mortality, but both of these, alone or together, will lead to the desire for power, for making the will more quickly effective and so to the machine or magic. By the last, I intend all use of external plans or devices, apparatus, instead of developments of the inherent inner powers or talents, or even the use of these talents with the corrupted motive of dominating bulldozing the real world or coercing other wills. The machine is our more obvious modern form, though more closely related to magic than is usually recognized. I have not used magic consistently, and indeed the elven queen Galadriel is obliged to remonstrate with the hobbits on their confused use of the word, both for the devices and operations of the enemy and for those of the elves. I have not, because there is not a word for the latter, since all human stories have suffered the same confusion. But the elves are there in my tales to demonstrate the difference. Their magic is art, delivered for many of its human limitations, more effortless, more quick, more complete, product and vision and unflawed correspondence. And its object is art, not power, Subcreation, not domination, and Tyrannus reforming of creation. The elves are immortal, at least as far as this world goes, and hence are concerned rather with the griefs and burdens of deathlessness and time and change than with death. The enemy in successive form is always naturally concerned with sheer domination, and so the lord of magic and machines, but the problem that this frightful evil can and does arise from an apparent good root, the desire to benefit the world and others, speedily and according to the benefactor's own plans, is a recurrent motive. The cycles began with a cos- cosmogonical myth. I've got to look that word up, guys. Cosmogonical myth. The music of the Aimer, Aner, God and the Valor or powers, Englished as gods, are revealed. These latter are, as we should say, angelic powers whose function is to exercise delegated authority in their spheres of rule and government, not creation, making or remaking. 
they are divine that is were originally outside and existed before the making of the world their power and wisdom is derived from their knowledge of cosmogonical drama which they perceived first as a drama that is as in a fashion we perceive a story composed by someone else and latter as a reality on the side of mere narrative device this is, of course, meant to provide beings of the same order of beauty, power, and majesty as the gods of higher mythology, which can yet be accepted, well, shall we say bat baldly, by a mind that believes in the blessed trinity. It moves then swiftly to the history of the elves or the Silmarillion proper, to the world as we perceive it, but of course transfigured in a still half mythical mode. That is, it deals with rational, incarnate creatures of more or less comparable stature with our own. The knowledge of the creation drama was incomplete. Incomplete in each individual god, and incomplete if all the knowledge of the pantheon were pooled. For partly to redress the evil of the rebel Melchor, Melchor. Partly for the completion of all in an ultimate finesse of detail. The creator had not revealed all. The making and nature of the children of God were the two chief secrets. All that the gods knew was that they would come at appointed times. The children of God are thus primevally related and akin and primevally different. Since all, also they are something wholly other to the gods in the making of which the gods played no part they are the object of the special desire and love of the gods. These are the firstborn, the elves, and the followers, men. The doom of the elves is to be immortal, to love the beauty of the world, to bring it to full flower with their gifts of delicacy and perfection, to last while it lasts, never leaving it when, even when slain, but returning and yet when the followers come to teach them and make way for them to fade as the followers grow and absorb the life from which both proceed, the doom or the gift of men is mortality, freedom from the circles of the world. Since the point of view of the whole cycle is the elvish, mortality is not explained myth mythically. It is a mystery of God of which no more is known than that what God has purposed for men is hidden, a grief and envy to the immortal elves. As I say, the legendary Silmarillion is peculiar and differs from all similar things that I know in not being anthropocentric. Its center of view and interest is not men but elves. Men come in inevitably after all the Arthur is a man and if he has an audience they will be men and men must come into our tales as such and not merely transfigured or partially represented as elves dwarfs hobbits etc but they remain peripheral late comers and however growingly important not principles in the cosmogony there is a fall a fall of angels we should say Though quite different in form, of course, to that of Christian myth, these tales are new. They are not directly derived from other myths and legends, but they must inevitably contain a large measure of ancient widespread motives or elements. After all, I believe that legends and myths are largely made of truth, and indeed present aspects of it can only be received in this mode, and long ago certain truths and modes of this kind were discovered and must always reappear. There cannot be any story without a fall. All stories are ultimately about the fall, at least not for human minds as we know them and have them. So proceeding, the elves have a fall before their history can be storial. The first fall of man, for reasons explained, nowhere appears. Men do not come on the stage until all that is long past. And there is only a rumor that for a while they fell under the domination of the enemy, and that some repented. The main body of the tale, the Silmarillion proper, is about the fall of the most gifted kindred of the elves, their exile from Valinor, a kind of paradise, the home of the gods. In the furthest west, their re-entry into Middle-earth, 
the land of their birth, but long under the rule of the enemy and their strife with him, the power of evil still visible incarnate. It receives its name because the events are all threaded upon the fate and significance of the Silmarilli or radiance of pure light or primeval jewels. By the making of gems, the sub-creative function of the elves is chiefly symbolized, but the Simarilli are more than just beautiful things as such. There was light. There was the light of Valinor, made visible in the two trees of silver and gold. These were slain by the enemy out of malice, and Valinor was darkened, though from them, ere they died utterly, were derived the lights of sun and moon. A marked difference here between these legends and most others is that the sun is not a divine symbol, but a second best thing. And the light of the sun, the world under the sun, became terms for a fallen world and a dislocated, imperfect vision. But the chief artificer of the elves, Fainer, had imprisoned the light of Valinor in the three supreme jewels. The Cimmerilli, before the trees were sullied or slain, this light thus lived thereafter only in these gems. The fall of the elves comes about through the possessive attitude of Fainer and his seven sons to these gems. They are captured by the enemy, set in his iron crown and guarded in his impenetrable stronghold. The sons of Fainer take a terrible and blasphemous oath of enmity and vengeance against all or any, even of the gods who dares to claim any part or right to the Cimmerilli. They pervert the greater part of their kindred who rebel against the gods and depart from paradise and go to make hopeless war upon the enemy. The first fruit of their fall is war in paradise, the slaying of elves by elves and this and their evil oath dogs, all their latter heroism, generating treacheries and undoing all victories. The Silmarillion is the history of the war of exiled elves against the enemy, which all takes place in the northwest of the world, Middle-earth. Several tales of victory and tragedy are caught up in it, but it ends with catastrophe and the passing of the ancient world, the world of the first, of the long first age. The jewels are recovered by the final intervention of the gods, only to be lost forever to the elves, one in the sea, one in the depths of the earth, one as a star of heaven. This legendarium ends with the vision of the end of the world, its breaking and remaking and the recovery of the Cimmerilli and the light before the sun, after a final battle which owes, I suppose, more to the Norse vision of Ragnarok than to anything else, though it is not much like it. As the stories become less mythical and more like stories and romances, men are interwoven. For the most part, these are good men, families and their chiefs, who, reje who rejecting the service of evil and hearing rumors of the gods of the West and the high elves flee westward and come into contact with the exiled elves in the midst of their war. The men who appear are mainly those of the three houses of the fathers of men whose chieftains become allies of the elf lords. The contact of men and elves already foreshadows the history of the latter ages and a recurrent theme is the idea that in men as they are now, there is a strand of blood and inheritance derived from the elves and that the art and poetry of men is largely dependent on it or modified by it. There are thus two marriages of mortal and elf, both later coalescing in the kindred of Arendelle, represented in by Elrond, the half-elven half who appears in all the stories, even the hobbit. The chief of the stories of the Silmarillion and the one most fully treated is the story of Baron, the Luthien, the elf maiden. Here we meet, among other things, the first example of the motive to become dominant in hobbits, that the great policies of world history, the wheels of the world are often turned not by the lords and governors, even gods, but by the seemingly unknown and weak owing to the secret life in creation and the part unknowable to all wisdom but one that resides in the intrusions of the children of God into the drama. It is Baron, the outlawed mortal, who succeeds with the help of Luthien, a mere maiden, even if an elf of royalty, where all the armies and warriors have failed. He penetrates the stronghold of the enemy and wrests one of the 
of the Cimmerilli from the Iron Crown. Thus, he wins the hand of Luthien, and the first marriage of mortal and immortal is achieved. As such, the story is, I think, a beautiful and powerful heroic fairy romance, receivable in itself with only a very general, vague knowledge of the background, but it is also a fundamental link in the cycle derived of its full significance out of its place therein. For the capture of the Cimmeril, a supreme victory leads to disaster. The oath of the sons of Fainer becomes operative. The lust for the Cimmeril brings all the kingdoms of the elves to ruin. There are other stories almost equally full in treatment and equally independent, yet linked to the general history. There is the children of Huron, the tragic tale of Turin Turambar and his sister Ninio, of which Turin is the hero, a figure that might be said by people who like that sort of thing, though it is not very useful, to be derived from elements in Sigurd, the Volsung, Oipidus, and Finnish Kalervo. There is the fall of Gondolin, the chief elvish stronghold and the tale or tales of Arundel, the wanderer. He is important as the person who brings the Cimmerillion to its end and as providing in its offspring the main links to the persons in the tales of latter ages. His function as a representative of both kindreds, elves, and men is to find a sea passage back to the land of the gods and as ambassador persuade them to take thought again for the exiles, to pity them and rescue them from the enemy. His wife, Elwyn, descends from Luthien and still possesses the Cimmeril, but the curse still works, and Arundel's home is destroyed by the sons of Fainer, and this provides the solution. Elwyn casting herself onto the sea, or into the sea, to save the jewel, comes to Arundel, and with the power of the great gem, they pass at last to Valinor and accomplish their errand, at the cost of never being allowed to return or dwell again with elves or men. The gods then move again, and great power comes out of the west, and the stronghold of the enemy is destroyed, and he himself is thrust out of the world into the void, never to reappear there in incarnate form again. The remaining two Cimmerils are regained from the Iron Crown, only to be lost. The last two sons of Fainer, compelled by their oath, steal them and are destroyed by them, casting themselves into the sea in the pits of the earth. The ship of Arundel, Adorned with the last Cimmeril is set in heaven as the brightest star. So ends the Cimmerillion in the tales of the first age. The next cycle deals or would deal with the second age, but it is on earth. A dark age and not very much of its history is or need be told. In the great battles against the first enemy, the lands were broken and ruined and the west of Middle Earth became desolate. We learn that the exiled elves were, if not commanded, at least sternly counseled to re return into the West and there be at peace. They were not to dwell permanently in Valinor again, but in the lonely Isle of Eresia, within sight of the Blessed Realm, the men of the three houses were rewarded for their valor and faithful alliance by being allowed to dwell westernmost of all mortals in the great Atlantis, Isle of Numenor, the doom or gift of God of mortality. The gods, of course, cannot abrogate, but the Numerinians have a great span of life. They set sail and leave Middle-earth and establish a great kingdom of mariners just within furthest sight of Eurasia, but not of Alinor. Most of the high elves depart also back to the west. Not all. Some men akin to the Numerinians remain in the land not far from the shores of the sea. Some of the exiles would not return or delay their return, for the way west is ever open to the immortals, and the Grey Haven ships are ever ready to sail away forever. Also, the orcs, goblins, and other monsters bred by the first enemy are not wholly destroyed, and there is Sauron. In, in the Sigmarillion, the tales of the First Age, Sauron was a being of Valinor, perverted to the service of the enemy and becoming his chief captain and servant. He repents in fear when the first enemy is utterly defeated, but in the end does not do as was commanded. Return to the judgment of the gods. 
He lingers in Middle-earth, very slowly, beginning with fair motives, the reorganizing and rehabilitation of the ruin of Middle-earth neglected by the gods. He becomes a reincarnation of evil and a thing lusting for complete power and so consumed ever more fiercely with hate, especially of gods and elves, all through the twilight of the Second Age, the shadow is growing in the east of Middle-earth, spreading its sway more and more over men who multiply as the elves begin to fade. The three main themes are thus, the delaying elves that lingered in Middle-earth, Sauron's growth to the new dark, dark lord, master and god of men, and Numenor Atlantis. They are dealt and analytically and in two tales or accounts, the rings of power and the downfall of Numenor. Both are the essential background to The Hobbit and its sequel. In the first, we see a sort of second fall or at least error of the elves. There was nothing wrong essentially in their lingering against council, still sadly with the mortal lands of their heroic deeds but they wanted to have their cake without eating it. They wanted the peace and bliss and perfect memory of the West and yet to remain on the ordinary earth where their prestige as the highest people above wild elves, dwarves, and men was greater than that, than at the bottom of the hierarchy of Valinor. They thus became obsessed with fading, the mode in which the changes of time, the law of the world under the sun, was perceived by them. They became sad and their art, shall we say, antiquarian and their efforts all really a kind of embalming, even though they also retained the old motive of their kind, the adornment of earth and the healing of its hurts. We hear of a lingering kingdom in the extreme Northwest, more or less in what was left in the old lands of the Cimmerillion under Gil Gil Gilgalad, and of other settlements, such as Imladris, Rivendell near Elrond, and a great one at Eregion, at the western feet of the misty mountains adjacent to the mines of Moriah, the major realm of the dwarves in the Second Age. There arose a friendship between the usually hostile folk of elves and dwarves. For the first and only time, the smithcraft reached its highest development, but many of the elves listened to Sauron. He was still fair in that early time, and his motives and those of the elves seemed to go partly together, the healing of the desolate lands. Sauron found their weak point in suggesting that helping one another they could make Western Middle-earth as beautiful as Valinor. It was really a veiled attack on the gods, an incitement to try and make a separate, independent paradise. Gilgalad repulsed all such overtures, as also did Elrond, but at Eregion. Great work began, and the elves came their nearest to falling to magic and machinery. With the aid of Sauron's lord, they made rings of power. Power is an ominous and sinister word in all these tales, except as applied to the gods. The chief power of all the rings alike was the prevention or slowing of decay, i.e. change, viewed as the regrettable thing, the preservation of what is desired or loved or its semblance. This is more or less an elvish motive, but also they enhance the natural powers of a possessor, thus approaching magic a motive easily corruptible into evil, a lust for domination. And finally, they had other powers, more directly derived from Sauron, the necromancer, so he is called as he casts a fleeting shadow and presage on the pages of The Hobbit, such as rendering invisible and material body and making things of the invisible world visible. The elves of Eregion made three supremely beautiful and powerful rings, almost solely of their own imagination and directed to the preservation of beauty. They did not confer invisibility, but secretly in the subterranean fire in his own black land, Sauron made one ring, the ruling ring that contained the powers of all the others and controlled them so that its wearer could see the thoughts of all those that used the lesser rings, could govern all that they did, and in the end, 
could utterly enslave them. He reckoned, however, without the wisdom and subtle perceptions of the elves. The moment he assumed the one, they were aware of it, and of his secret purpose they were afraid. They hid the three rings so that not even Sauron ever discovered where they were, and they remained unsullied. The others they tried to destroy. In the resulting war between Sauron and the elves, Middle-earth, especially in the west, was further ruined. Eregion was captured and destroyed, and Sauron seized many rings of power. These he gave for their ultimate corruption and enslavement to those who would accept them out of ambition or greed. Hence, the ancient rhyme that appears as the leet motif of the Lord of Rings. Three rings for the elven kings under the sky, seven for the dwarf lords in their halls of stone, nine for the mortal men doomed to die, one for the dark lord on his dark throne in the land of Mordor, where the shadows lie. Sauron became thus most supreme in Middle-earth. The elves held out in secret places, not yet revealed. The last elf kingdom of Gilgalad is maintained precariously on the extreme west shores, where are the havens of the ships. Elrond, the half-elven son of Arundel, maintains a kind of enchanted sanctuary at M. Ladris, in English Rivendell, on the extreme eastern margin of the western lands. But Sauron dominates all the multiplying hordes of men that have had no contact with the elves, and so indirectly with the true and unfallen valor and gods. He rules a growing empire from the great dark tower of Barad-dor in Mordor, near the mountain of fire, wielding the one ring. But to achieve this, he had been obliged to let a great part of his own inherent power, a frequent, a frequent and very significant motive in myth and fairy story, pass into the one ring. While he wore it, his power on earth was actually enhanced. But even if he did not wear it, that power existed and was in rapport with himself. He was not diminished unless some other seized it and became possessed of it. If that happened, the new possessor could, if sufficiently strong and heroic by nature, challenge Sauron, become master of all that he had learned or done since the making of the One Ring, and so overthrow him and usurp his place. This was the essential weakness he had introduced into his situation in his effort, largely unsuccessful, to enslave the elves and in his desire to establish a control over the minds and wills of his servants. There was another weakness. If the one ring was actually unmade, annihilated, then its power would be dissolved. Sauron's own being would be diminished to vanishing point, and he would be reduced to a shadow, a mere memory of malicious will, but that he never contemplated nor feared. The ring was unbreakable by any smithcraft less than his own. It was indissoluble in any fire, save the undying subterranean fire where it was made, and that was unapproachable in Mordor. Also, so great was the ring's power of lust that anyone who used it became mastered by it. It was beyond the strength of any will, even his own, to injure it, cast it away or neglect it, so he thought it was in any case on his finger. Thus, as the second age draws on, we have a great kingdom and evil theocracy, for Sauron is also the god of his slaves. Growing up in Middle-earth, in the west, actually the northwest, is the only part clearly envisaged in these tales, lie the precarious refuge, refuges of the elves, while men in those parts remain more or less uncorrupted, if ignorant. The better and nobler sort of men are in fact the kin of those that had departed to Numenor, but remain in a simple Homeric state of patriarchal and tribal life. Meanwhile, Numenor has grown in wealth, wisdom, and glory. Under its lines of great kings of long life directly descended from Elros, Arundel's son, brother of Elrond, the downfall of Numenor, the second fall of man, or man rehabilitated still mortal, brings on the catastrophic end, not only of the second age, but of the old world, the primeval world of legend envisaged as flat and bound, bounded, after which the third age began a twilight age, a medium evum, 
the first of the broken and changed world, the last of the lingering dominion of visible, fully incarnate elves, and the last also in which evil assumes a single dominant incarnate shape. The downfall is partly the result of an inner weakness in men, consequent, if you will, upon the first fall, unrecorded in these tales, repented, but not finally healed. Reward on earth is more dangerous for men than punishment. The fall is achieved by the cunning of Sauron in exploiting his weakness. Its central theme is, inevitably, I think, in a story of men, a ban or prohibition. The Numeranians dwell within far side of the easternmost immortal land, Erisa, and the only men to speak an elvish tongue learned in the days of their alliance, they are in constant communication with their ancient friends and allies, either in the bliss of Eresia or in the kingdom of Gilgalad, on the shores of Middle-earth. They became thus in appearance, and even in powers of mind, hardly distinguishable from the elves, but they remained mortal, even though rewarded by a triple or more than a triple span of years. Their reward is their undoing, or the means of their temptation. Their long life aids their achievements in art and wisdom but breeds a possessive attitude to these things and desire awakes for them, time for their enjoyment. Foreseeing this, in part, the gods laid a ban on the Numeranians from the beginning. They must never set sail to Eresia, nor westward out of sight of their own land. In all other directions, they could go as they would. They must not set foot on immortal lands and so become enamored of an immortality within the world, which is against their law. The special doom or gift of Ilvatar, God, which is their nature, could not, in fact, endure. Which, which their nature could not, in fact, endure. There are three phases in their fall from grace. First, acquiescence. Obedience that is free and willing, though without complete understanding. Then for long they obey unwillingly, murmuring more and more openly. Finally they rebel and a rift appears between the king's men and rebels and the small minority of persecuted faithful. In the first stage, being men of peace, their courage is devoted to sea voyages. As descendants of Arundel, they became the supreme mariners, and being barred from the west, they sailed to the uttermost north and south and east. Mostly they come to the west shores of Middle-earth, where they aid the elves and men against Sauron and incur his undying hatred. In those days, they would come amongst wild men as almost divine benefactors, bringing gifts of arts and knowledge and passing away again, leaving many legends behind of kings and gods out of the sunset. In the second stage, the days of pride and glory and grudging of the band, they begin to seek wealth rather than bliss. The desire to escape death produced a cult of the dead, and they lavished wealth and art on tombs and memorials. They now made settlements on the west shores, but these became rather strongholds and factories of lords seeking wealth, and the Numerinians became tax gatherers, carrying off over the sea ever more and more goods in their great ships. The Numerinians began the forging of arms and engines. This phase ended, and the last began with the ascent of the throne of the 13 king the 13th king of the line of Elros, Tar Kelion, the golden, the most powerful and proud of all kings. When he learned that Sauron had taken the title of king of kings and lord of the world, he resolved to put down the pretender. He goes in strength and majesty to Middle Earth, and so fast is his armament, and so terrible are the Numerinians in the day of their glory that Sauron's servants will not face them. Sauron humbles himself does homage to Tar Kelion, and is carried off to Numor, Numenor as hostage and prisoner. But there he swiftly rises by his cunning and knowledge from servant to chief counselor of the king and seduces the king and most of the lords and people with, their, with his lies. He denies the existence of God, saying that the one is a mere invention of the jealous valor of the West, the oracle of their own wishes. The chief of the gods is he that dwells in the void, who will conquer in the end and in the void make endless realms for his servants. The ban is only a lying device of fear to restrain the kings of men from seizing everlasting life and rivaling the valor. A new religion, the worship of the dark with its temple under Sauron 
arises. The faithful are persecuted and sacrificed. The Numerinians carry their evil also to Middle-earth and there become cruel and wicked lords of necromancy, slaying and tormenting men. And the old legends are overlaid with dark tales of horror. This does not happen, however, in the Northwest, for thither, because of the elves, only the faithful who remain elf friends will come. The chief haven of the good Numerinians is near the mouth of the great river Anduin. Thus, the still benef beneficence, beneficent influence of Numenor spreads up the river and along the coasts as far north as the realm of Gilgalad, as the common speech grows up. But at last, Sauron's plot comes to fulfillment. Tarkalion feels old age and death approaching approaching and he listens to the last prompting of Sauron and building the greatest of all armadas he sets sail into the west breaking the ban and going up with war to rest from the gods everlasting life within the circles of the world faced by his rebellion of appalling folly and blasphemy and also real peril since the Numerinians directed by Sauron could have wrought ruin in Valinor itself, the Valor lay down their delegated power and appeal to God and received the power and permission to deal with the situation. The old world is broken and changed. The chasm is opened in the sea and Tarkalion and his armada is engulfed. Numenor itself on the edge of the rift topples and vanishes forever with all its glory in the abyss. Thereafter, there is no visible dwelling of the divine or immortal on earth. Valinor or Paradise, and even Eresia are removed, remaining only in the memory of the earth. Men may sail now west if they will as far as they may, and come no nearer to Valinor or the blessed realm, but return only into the east, and so back again, for the world is round and infinite, and a circle inescapable, save by death. Only the immortals the lingering elves may still if they will, wearying of the circle of the world, take ship and find the straight way and come to the ancient or true west and be at peace. So the end of the second age draws on in a major catastrophe, but it is not yet quite concluded. From the cataclysmic, there are survivors. Elendil the Fair, chief of the faithful, his name means elf friend, and his sons, Elsidor and Enarian, Elendil, a Noachian figure who has held off from the rebellion and kept ships manned and furnished off the east coast of Numenor, flees before the overwhelming storm of the wrath of the west and is borne high upon the towering waves that bring ruin to the west of the Middle Earth. He and his folk are cast away as exiles upon the shores. There they established the Numerinian kingdoms of Arnor in the north, close to the realm of Gilgalad and the Gondor, about in Gondor, about the mouths of Anduin, further south. Sauron, being an immortal, hardly escapes the ruin of Numenor and returns to Mordor, where after a while he is strong enough to challenge the exiles of Numenor. The second age ends with the last alliance of elves and men and the great siege of Mordor. It ends with the overthrow of Sauron and the destruction of the second visible incarnate of evil, but at a cost and with one disastrous mistake. Gilgalad and Elendil are slain in the act of slaying Sauron. Ilzeldor, Elendil's son, cuts the ring from Sauron's hand and his power departs and his spirit flees into the shadows, but the evil begins to work. Isildur claims the ring as his own, as the guild of his father, and refuses to cast it into the fire nearby. He marches away, but is drowned in the great river, and the ring is lost, passing out of all knowledge. But it is not unmade, and the dark tower, built with its aid, still stands, empty but not destroyed. So ends the second age with the coming of the Numerinian realms and the passing of the last kingship of the High Elves. So as you have heard, that is just the front matter of the Cimmerillion. 
<laughs> it feels like I got the entire book in one hour. I hope you don't feel the same way because I want you to come back as I read The Silmarillion for myself. But on a serious note, and that was serious, so I don't know what I mean by this, but if the producers of The Power of the Rings would have just read the front matter of the Silmarillion, they would be on much better footing and they would be respecting this lore much more. And dare I say, if they only read the letter that Tolkien wrote to the editor, they would have so much source material and all they would need to do is what I just did now, sit around a table and divide this damn long letter out and read it and absorb it and talk about it. But did they do that? No, they didn't. They decided that they were going to take his work and bastardize it. And instead of um, subjecting myself to that dumpster fire that's coming on Amazon Prime before I know it, I am going to get the lore in its rawest form. And if you are down to get the lore for yourself or to relive it, or if this is just your complete gem and you love this, then keep coming back to the podcast because I'm about to dive into the book, which I feel like I'm already, I feel like I've read the entire book and this was just the front matter. Nevertheless, I am your bookie and I thank you for joining me for another episode and getting the introduction to the Silmarillion. There is clearly much more to come, but moving forward in the next parts of this series, you're going to get the bookie take. So it, it won't be quite as clinical as what I just read because I'm a human being. And, you know, as the author himself said, men have got to inject themselves into the lore so that other men can identify with what the hell they're trying to say. So, this is the beginning of the series. Go ahead and come back and I will talk to you on the next episode.